This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 13, Uses of Nietzsche in Political Philosophy, and Deleuze's reading of Nietzsche and his recasting of the concept of Rosentiment. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, we are talking about uses of Nietzsche in political thinking. And this will be a very different episode for us. This is the first time in quite a while that the four of us have gotten together and just had a rap with each other. And so on the episode today, there's me, of course, and we have Will. Hello. We have Matt. Hi. And we have Adam here, too. Hello. Maybe the first thing that we can do is kick it off with what I think are going to be a few guiding questions in this episode. Uh, The first question I have is, what are ways in which Nietzsche's legacy, or quote, last will and testament, unquote, as Deleuze puts it, can be actualized in theoretical labor and philosophy or in political theory? So, in other words, how can philosophy be brought into the service of our enlivenment? Or quite simply, how can we use Nietzsche politically? And then number two, how, if at all, can Nietzsche be used for advancing emancipatory programs of the left? And maybe this question isn't so different than the previous one. The last question I have on the list is, in what ways can Deleuze's Nietzsche and Nietzsche and philosophy and elsewhere be used to serve these goals? And so some concepts that we're going to run into today are Nietzsche's concept of genealogy, Nietzsche's theory of forces as they're elaborated by Deleuze in his book on Nietzsche, and Deleuze's treatment of Rosentiment in the book Nietzsche and Philosophy, and as it appears elsewhere in Anti-Oedipus and places like that. So, I'm going to just start off by asking the co-hosts, in what ways do you think Nietzsche's thought can bring to bear upon or positively impact political thinking? And I'll start with Matt. Sure. Um, So, He's a difficult philosopher in terms of politics, just in the sense that so much of his work wasn't directly political, um, and it's hard to bring out any kind of sort of coherent political framework from it. But I, I think if, if, there's a, if there's going to be anything that you know, like I can, I can think of straight away, it would be the concept of Rosentiment, and the ways in which that's used as a concept, both on the left and the right, and how, with an awareness of that concept, we can think through how we actually engage in politics, how we think about it, and what, what it is that motivates us, and what kind of guidelines we have for action, I suppose. What about you, Adam? Uh, yeah, I guess my primary interest in Nietzsche as, as a thinker, especially when it comes to real politics, is where I see him having a sort of a commonality with Marx, and also, I guess, in my very partisan reading of Hegel, as being a thinker who's trying to engineer in his readers and in the wider culture around him a kind of very radical affirmation of, of creative power and creative potential, both through the discovery of Rosentiment, as Matt says, but you know, through which he develops a, a kind of suspicion of dominant structures that hold back certain aspects of very vital creative power. But also for yes, it's uh, the thought of eternal return, for example, which tries to condition a new kind of thinking such that great things become possible, that the will can be projecting itself onto an eternal scope and a way of seeing its own creativity as a positive force to be used and, in, and enjoyed, rather than subjugated under structures of resentments or 
captured in any kind of way and refused to fully flourish or be itself. So I think, you know, any emancipatory project that wants to not just be a worker, but also be a, a creator would need to grasp with some of the themes that Nietzsche's putting out there. Great. And Will, what about you? I think I'm going to start with Nietzsche by talking about Marx. In his letter to Rouge, he, he, he writes that he wants his journal work to be a, a critique of everything in existence. I can't help but think, in a certain sense, that in the way that Marx was trying to engender in his reader a sort of consciousness or an awareness, Nietzsche is trying to do the same thing, but it, it's, it's in a different way. It's one that tries to show us, sort of in a comparably material fashion, the axioms within which we exist and how it impacts the way in which we view or address particular political concerns. And I, I don't think one has to go much further when talking about Nietzsche and his consequences than looking at Foucault. And I know we'll spend some time looking at Foucault and Fisher later, but the emancipatory power of, of Nietzsche in my reading is one that shows, I think, Fisher puts it best. History is a series of contingencies. And, you know, Fisher's reliance on untimely meditations makes that clear. So, yeah, I think that I have a sort of genealogical appreciation of Nietzsche because I think he's sort of engendering a, a different sort of affirmative awareness. I think the first thing that we want to start off with is Nietzsche's project as a critique a complete critique or an inversion of the Kantian project. And this is something that Deleuze goes right after in Nietzsche and philosophy. I have this quote here. It says, but first there is this fact. Nietzsche questions the concept of truth. He denies that the true can be an element of language. What he is contesting is the very notions of true and false. Not because he wants to relativize them like an ordinary skeptic, in their place he substitutes sense and value as rigorous notions. The sense of what one says and the evaluation of the one saying it. You always get the truth you deserve according to the sense of what you say. And according to Nietzsche, Nietzsche recasts the truth as a problematic structure of thought pegged to sense and value. Truth derives from those values to which you give voice. And so, what I just said there, that's kind of an amalgam of a Deleuze quote, and I was interpolating along the way. But what does Deleuze and Nietzsche here mean by sense and value, and, and what is the nature of the Kantian reversal? And so, maybe, uh, Adam, you can say a few things about that. Uh, yeah, in terms of the, the Kantian reversal, in a way, how Deleuze is construing Nietzsche is... Um, not necessarily, it does become technical, but in a way, in a sense, it's a very uh, common reaction, at least a reaction I had, to to reading Kant, to reading the first critique. Because in the first critique, the, the argument structure is presuppositional. For example, in the deduction of time and space in the transcendental aesthetic, he wants geometry to be a science of how we understand and order our experiences in the world. And so he says, well, what do we need to presuppose to get this? And for this, he gives us the transcendental uh, forms of sensibility to our space and time. Now, this move of assumption and presupposition is something which at first seems quite quite jarring. As sort of a, it seems to be like a truth-seeking um, project. It kind of seems that, well, what if I didn't want geometry as the structuring science of my experience? It may seem absurd, but what if I, what if I didn't? And it's in this sense in which sort of the Nietzschean-Deleuzean move is to say, well, the structure of delimiting categories of our experience, the very limits of reason, 
and sensibility are determined by Kant in this sense that has been incredibly influential purely based on what he wants. And that's what he values as the force of his own wanting, his own willing of these categories has seized, uh, you know, has not only produced these categories through this method of presupposition, but also seized and fixed their meaning against the various ways in which human thought tries to go beyond them. So in a sense, he has given the meaning of our uh, categories, the meaning of the limits of our reason, a certain kind of sense or meaning through the force of what he wants them to be. And this is, I think, what Deleuze brings up when he talks about the senses of anything, really, is just being a history or simply the act of forcing them into a certain kind of meaning. Kant's senses give sense to the categories of pure reason by asserting them through this presuppositional method by which what he wants to pre- what he wants to prove is already presupposed. This is also brought up in, uh, in Hegel as well. The one thing that Deleuze really emphasizes is that with sense, it's not this principle or this origin. It's something, uh, he says, in quote, whose laws of production must be uncovered. And we get this in Nietzsche's retelling of history. How does anything come to be a sense? How does any sort of emotional comportment, for example, how is that a product of history? How is it that what Kant wants becomes privileged anyway? Yeah, how do we get these, for example, yeah, genealogy of morals is a, a historical, a semi-historical attempt to deduce how our senses of good and evil came about. And he expresses that through an expression of force, you know, the um, the mass morality versus slave morality and the, and the slave revolt. So yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's right. Maybe an example that can serve us in this instance is the trend of thinking outside the terms of God and self. Once you dissolve one of these terms, at least in the way that it's been thought of historically, it immediately entails the dissolution of the other term. And so Deleuze, in his reading of Nietzsche, is going to valorize these forms of impersonal individuations. This is one of the ways that Deleuze is going to actualize Nietzsche's project. He's going to read Nietzsche by fleshing out the full set of implications that's latent within the work. How can we take, for example, this thinking about the subject or the individual and push it now into a metaphysical theory of forces and relations of forces such that we are no longer bound to the assumptions which presuppose something like an always already given individuality? And I think to bring it back to these uh, political origins of our discussion, uh, you could also think of recognition as an act of sensing, especially when this recognition isn't in sort of the fluffy uh, liberal Hegelian mutual sense of recognition, but also in the sense that certain senses and meanings and categories are imposed upon you by political forces. For example, the legal recognition of, of, of gender, that is a attempt at sensing, seeing, forcing meanings onto people's bodies, inscribing these in a show of legal and, and political force. And look, this is this is essential primarily to, to Deleuze's later work with, with Guattari, but a project that is enabled really by French Nietzscheanism, um, and one that engages heavily with the genealogy and the transvaluation. And look, I'm going to come back time and time again to the genealogy. I know we're going to have a fascinating discussion on the birth of tragedy because I know Craig has a really cool reading of it. Um, but I think these sorts of things, when it comes down to like Nietzsche and its consequences, <laughs> Nietzscheanism and its consequences, um, we, one thing we need to look at is the way in which philosophers as political forces themselves recognized 
particular uh, sort of Nietzschean strategies of analysis when it comes to history. Namely, Foucault. Right, right. (laughs) But also, like, too, like, you know, when we talk about Nietzsche as a historical artifact, we were talking before the... um, before the episode, and I, I know, Craig, you have a lot to say about Bataille, and so do you, um, Adam. There was sort of this moment in in European history where where Nietzsche was truly considered a, a a thinker that would fall into sort of the realm of the fascistic. He was appropriated by those forces so much so that, like you know, even before World War II, when we had sort of imperial clashes that would create the First World War, you know, German soldiers were sent out sort of pamphlet abridged versions of "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," right? So the the even the word "Ubermensch" carries with it such a hefty political uh, and almost sort of violent connotation. And, you know, Bataille, right, in, is in a sense sort of a, a violent and and disturbed uh, rejection of that. You know, that's something that, that he found just deeply, deeply troubling because, right, Bataille would be in that same exact scenario historically, right? He'd be present at that horror and then would find himself even more horrified by the appropriation of Nietzsche by these right-wing imperial uh, fascistic forces. Is this, yeah, the discussion of the fascistic sense of Nietzsche shows sort of the the extremes of range that we can apply at the Deleuzean, Deleuzean sort of Nietzschean concept of the sensic because, you know, we, we can't say on this podcast, you know, we are we are going to give you a left Nietzsche. We're going to say this is, this is Nietzsche and he is left. No, all we can really do is provide a counter sense to the uh, very fascistic ways in which he's been deployed. And it, this concept of sense even... It goes beyond left Nietzscheanism into some of the French strains of structural Marxism. So, if we go back to our episode now, mm-hmm. what is he, he? He thinks that there is to be a, a communist education, a communist ideology to be built. And what is that other than communist forces trying to create a counter sense of their relations right. to the, the new material order, as well as their relations to the current material order, as something that needs to be destroyed? No, I think that's. I think that's great. I think that's that's absolutely right. I think one of the tools that's going to drive this discussion forward is talking about the theory of forces as it's articulated by Deleuze in his book, Nietzsche and Philosophy. And on our previous episode, this was something that Matt had brought up too. Maybe the first thing that we should do is identify what Nietzsche, through the filter of Deleuze, means when it comes to active forces and reactive forces and the notion of reactivity And we also got to get a handle on the idea of negation operating on reactivity. These are crucial ways that Deleuze disentangles this caricature of Nietzsche as, as, as a, as a fascist. Although he's not, he's not saying that explicitly in this text. This does come up later and is translated in a way in Anti-Oedipus. But maybe, uh, Matt, you, you had mentioned about active and reactive forces in the previous episode. So maybe you could say a few things about that. Well, I could say a little bit. Um, so I actually think this is probably where some of the some of the sort of fascistic readings of of Nietzsche probably arose was in it's it's quite obvious that in Nietzsche's overall philosophy the sort of this element of positivity of act of active life um, of creativity in a sense is is a really central part of it and 
these active and reactive forces are the way is is the way in which Nietzsche conceptualizes um, this these, these play of material forces. Essentially, um, it, it's not a. It, it's probably one reason why Deleuze was quite interested in him. It's kind of a non-Hegelian but materialist way of looking at the world. For any ind- any 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 individual, and you know, probably beyond that as well. Um, Nietzsche's going to ask the question, what kind of forces are driving this, driving this person, driving these actions, driving these effects? Um, and there's a question there about whether we can really ever really know for certain, but um, he's going to want to say that active forces are in some sense a kind of positive um, and creative um, force, which, which, or, yeah, force, which um, creates... But may in in sort of the the embodiment of those forces have a side effect of of destroying as well, um, and reactive forces um, simply uh, react against them. Basically, they are they are reactive, um, and it, I don't think it's simply that one's good and one's bad as such. But he is going to want to say that there's something about the these active forces which is highly highly important. And it's sort of Deleuzean sort of way is sort of a, a positive line of flight, I suppose, which uh, can be explored and then reacted to by reactive forces. But it's never really the reactive forces which drive history and the world onwards, as far as I can understand it. Our experience as a body comprises both active and reactive forces, and and hopefully that's something that I get to at the end of this section here. Just to give a brief flash forward, though, what Deleuze says about consciousness. Consciousness and memory comprise a certain amount of reactive forces. However, these reactive forces are impinged upon or imposed upon by active forces. And I I want to sort out the details on that a little bit later, but it's just interesting going into this thinking that consciousness might be composed of reactive force. So, let's think about that as as we go through. The first thing that I want to talk about in relation to the theory of forces is Deleuze thinking against the dialectic. And so, of course, we're going to bring Hegel in here. And the first thing that, that Deleuze does is he proposes that, uh, well, first he identifies Hegel as, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Adam, <laughs> uh, that the dialectic is constituted by an opposition of same and other. And this is what you went over in your your previous episode, especially talking about the, the magnet. This model struggles, on Deleuze's terms anyway, struggles to account for life slash differences that lie beyond this schema of the same and other. So, the question for Deleuze is how any sort of differential element enters into a set of relations such that it can transform them and liquidate their identity. Yeah, um, well, I just put three about to the active and reactive forces thing, just to clear up. So the the point of activity is it's it's relation to difference and differentiation, and um, the active is that it, it differentiates itself and enjoys difference. So the active, for example, I mean, in sensing, the concept of sensing brings with it also the concept of, plur- of pluralism for Deleuze, insofar as you can actively in, in you know. Through your own power, sort of take hold of all these different things and give new senses to them, and I think it's it's relation to difference, which is always going to be the constant thing that you know Deleuze, Deleuze, and Hegelians are going to be beating each other over the head under whether Hegel has a room for difference or or not. In, In my view, I think Hegel does have a room for difference, and I because I'm coming for this school from the very Catherine Mallory side of 
Hegelian dialectics where there's, there's a sort of plastic power involved in in the dialectic and giving form to both sides rather than keeping them s- simply in oppositional terms. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to think that Deleuze is keeping these things purely in oppositional terms because that would just be say two thirds of the dialectic. That would only be what Hegel would be calling the moment of the understanding where you just have these two poles of the magnet. I think in terms of the opposition, I think there's a sense in which I mean I ultimately agree with Deleuze's where he ends up on his talking about Hegel at this point, because where he ends up is sort of um, saying that all Hegel eventually will reduce to the kind of active nihilistic sort of omniversal enjoyment of of the self which you get in a figure like Max Stirner. Well, I disagree with Deleuze. I think that I think that Nietzsche, Nietzsche at least in Deleuze's sense here, and Hegel are both aiming at affirming this this sort of kind of radical kind of plastic power. But insofar as we're going in the traditional sense of Deleuze versus the Hegel sort of he gets from uh, Jean Hippolyte and what he gets expended upon in um, the kind of difference repetition. What he's going against here is that things are defined oppositionally and each one mediates its, its identical position through, for lack of a better term, mutual recognition of the other through the other. And for this, you get these fixed kind of positions. And he thinks this isn't a very active thing. It's actually very reactive. Everything is reflective, reactive across these, these two poles. And this is why he talks about the master-slave dialectic, because there's no there's not really anything mastery about it. It's just the master ends up being conceived in terms of a, a slavish thing that does, just wants to know itself all the time. It doesn't actually have any activity. The master in Hegel's dialectic under Lerner's reading, he enslaves the slave because he wants recognition, not just to enjoy you know, the, the, the fruits of the slave labor. But I, I think that's a bit of a reductive reading. I don't think I, this, this could be just me writing against Kajev centering of the um, master-slave dialectic and everything, but I know that Deleuze wasn't necessarily part of the big hype for, but you know, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a book that I'm always in active engagement with, and I'm always never trying to reduce to any sort of caricature. I wanted to add something there, just to expand a little bit on this active reactive um, forces distinction. Craig and Adam understand um, Nietzschean philosophy much better than I do, but I wanted to add that one of Deleuze's one of the things he likes about Nietzsche and doesn't like what he sees in Hegel is that he thinks in Hegel. The dialectical movement essentially proceeds through a kind of through negation, right? Through a kind of negativity, you know, for this famous labour of a negative. And so, to expand a little, you know, to bring it back to the, the forces idea, what you find in these active forces is that they don't proceed by negation, or at least not primarily. They may have the side effect, the consequence of negating, but in a way, from Deleuze's reading at least, uh, the world is driven by active forces which create and affirm, not by negation in this negative sense. And so that's another reason why I think Deleuze probably quite, well, why he has this fascination with Nietzsche is that he sees in it an alternative to what he sees in Hegel as this kind of, this dialectical process which proceeds through negation. And so I think that's maybe another link there with the idea of active and reactive forces. Uh, what Deleuze is looking into, what is the sort of the forces, the motor underneath representation in our how we represent things and give them a sort of sense. And for Hegel, it is the process of sublation of Alphabung, in my opinion, of plasticity and of the negation of negation. That's what underlies all of representation. Whereas Deleuze thinks, no, 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 this negation is sim- simply representation. So they're both trying to critique representation from uh, different poles of the magnet, so to say. And for Nietzsche and for Deleuze, this activity is primarily this this ontological differentiation is, is, is that all the way down. And that's precisely it. And I'm glad you said that because the one thing that Deleuze confronts is this sort of reinsertion or reinjection of a notion of representation into the metaphysics. That's why he 
he uses Nietzsche's concept of the will to power as a genetic and differential element in the theory of forces. So that way we can dispense with negation entirely because what it allows for us is basically in the theory of forces, active forces are acting on reactive forces, right? But how is it that anything can take shape outside of a fixed identity, right? Well, that's where will to power comes in. There's this kind of plastic differential element that's guiding the formation of everything. So, what would ordinarily be said to stand behind the identity contradiction poles in Hegel, behind that framework is this massive plastic flowing of difference which undergirds the whole system. Yeah, that's, that's actually sort of basic explanation of difference repetition as well, of course. Between two plasticities. Yeah. And what I think is most interesting are the ethical implications that Deleuze announces in relation to Hegel's privileging of recognition in his metaphysics. So, if you look at Deleuze's other writings, namely the essay, He Was My Teacher, which is about Sartre, he talks about how Sartre refused to accept the Nobel Prize when he was awarded it. And so, we can draw a line from Deleuze's ethics of difference to his regard for Sartre, who in a sense instantiated a form of affirmative ethics that wasn't reliant upon a notion of recognition. And it's in no uncertain terms that Deleuze believes that Hegel's privileging of recognition in his metaphysics is indicative of this kind of sadness or sad passions. You have this kind of sadness, you have this kind of wanting, you have this kind of lack. And the upshot to Deleuze's metaphysics, at least on his terms, is that you don't have that. And I think the problem of recognition for Deleuze here, and I think as well in, in some readings of Hegel, is also that this re- lot of, the sort of recognition that is often wanted is a sort of recognition that would give one's identity a certain fixity away from difference. You don't want to be recognized as something that can be differentiated and has this sort of creative plastic power undergirding it. Instead, you want to be recognized as this substantial thing. I mean, in the master-slave dialectic, which which is by no means the last thing Hegel has to say on recognition. What what they both want is to be recognised as this independent, self-conscious I that undergirds the entire world of consciousness of of mm-hmm. representation, and. The reason why it completely uh, explodes, and then you have the rest of the phenomenology of spirit, which uh, one day someone else will read, uh, this fixity does not happen. The contradiction is always there. It's the explosion of difference. It's beautiful. Read it. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite readings of Nietzsche, um, aside from Deleuze, uh, is by Bernard Register. And in there, it was just sort of bringing us, and we talked about at the very start. Um, I think it was Adam who talked about the idea of um, you take away the concept of God um, and, pro- and problematize you know, the notion of the self, and then suddenly the entire framework sort of uh, conventional Western philosophical framework sort of collapses. And Register says that this is basically Nietzsche's entire uh, project in a way, is to reckon with the extent of the consequences which follow from the death of God, um, which, which really just means the, the prediction that it's going to become increasingly implausible to ever, you know, to have that kind of same position for him in our in our cultures and our societies. Um, and so, in light of that, um, Register says that for Nietzsche, it, it doesn't just problematize a few things; it problematizes everything, um, including all of the values which we take to be good. Um, and so, 
I think Nietzsche himself says there's something funny about how, in, in many cases, it's actually the atheists who who are the best, uh, the most most true Christians, because they they sense they have some sort of uh, desire to prove that no, I I may not believe in God, but nevertheless I hold to these Christian values, you know, so strongly. Nevertheless, brilliant. So yeah. Nietzsche wants to say that no, you can't get rid of God and then keep the rest of it, right? Um, so that's where you get this idea, at least in Register's reading, um, of the, you know, revaluation of all values. Like, what, are the va- what is the value of the values we hold? Um, if, if, if God is, if, you know, if God is quote-unquote dead, you know, um, where does that leave us, right? Um, are, in that case, if, and if there's no afterlife, are the values we hold as a sort of society or civilization or whatever, what have you, um, are those values which affirm our lives in all the possibilities of their creativity or are they ones which denigrate our lives um in the in the promise that they will be affirmed in the next um and so that's that's not Deleuze that's Redinster's reading but I think that gets us onto the topic of um value uh, in Deleuze's reading of him um and the revaluation of values yeah, and I think one of the interesting additions that we can connect right to that is Indelo's, where he talks about the notion of evaluation being a moral position itself. And this is something that was emergent in Nietzsche's retelling of history. So I think to get a better sense of that, maybe we want to say a little bit more about Rosentamont, maybe cover the concept a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, but before that, is there anything else on this topic? My understanding is that... Um what Deleuze, the maneuver Deleuze reading Nietzsche is going to do, and what was Deleuze, Nietzsche's Deleuze maneuver, I suppose, is to say um, evaluations always presuppose their own um, their own values in the first place. Um, is that is that right? And how does he, you know, what does he do with that? Value as a presupposition. I mean, to to elevate something to the status of being valued, you know, it, you could say it's in the Kantian sense of how we talk things about objects. Is you know, we only receive that which is receivable. We only elevate that which we can already have the capacity in our own thought and action to elevate. So if our capacity is very diminished, uh, you know, we will only be able to elevate certain things. But I think, yeah, there's also, but at the same time, this, this presupposition undermines itself in how far um, Nietzsche is willing to go beyond Kant because there already is this background of force acting upon us and that's where there's, there's this more creative differential element comes in and it's where it in a sense can be corrupted by, by the forces of Rosantemont because there is a you know there is a Christianity is not it was not something presupposed in the sort of safe revolt it was some, it was a creative response to this it was the spirit of negation uh, as Deleuze would put it and Nietzsche would put it being used for these kind of events. I mean, if if you want to think about this creative aspect, uh, the, the root of this for Nietzsche, if you want to go back to this book, Zarathustra, is revenge against time. So if you go to Dusbeck Zarathustra and you look at the sections where he's talking about the will being a prisoner, uh, and it rolls stones against itself and sets itself up as a prison and eventually goes mad, it's because it can't will backwards. It, all of its willings, its activities are fundamentally always being consumed by this force of time. It's like, you know, the more of Kronos constantly you know, taking in the creatings of, of his wife, Rhea, you know, eating the children all the time. And you've got nothing left to do. If, you, if, if, you're, if you're feeling that sort of force of time pushing against you all the time that you can't ever affirm or actively maintain difference in spite of, or even enjoy a simple 
finitude of differentiation, you're going to want to take revenge against time. You're going to want to fix things. You're going to want to form value systems and evaluate things that are more temporal, or at least condemn that which falls to time as deserving to. And then you get sort of blaming things for stuff that really haven't really got the incidence of the sense of blame. So if you go to the genealogy of morals, you talk about uh, separating the lightning from its flash. And this is a postulate of, of language where you have the subject-predicate distinction, then you can say X, you know, the lightning flashed. Well, lightning can't do anything but flash, it's just a process. The invention of the doer is a function of this kind of revenge, and then you can elevate certain kinds of doing, or in the, in the slave revolt case, GGF morals, certain cases of not doing, into moral precepts. So when the slave looks at the, the master in the genealogy of morals and says, look, well, I don't do all this pillaging and dominating, so I must be good. In the sort of, they don't have the capacity to do this thing in the first place. What you're hitting upon right now is going to dovetail nicely with the way that I was going to respond to Matt, actually. It's important to think that all values have a history. What philosophy, the discipline of philosophy, has given us is this figure of Socrates. It's important to remember that for Nietzsche, the historical evolution of Rosentiment finds its expression par excellence in Socrates. The kinds of questions that we even find important and the concepts that we're using flow from Plato's rendering of Socrates, notions of causality, finality, and so forth, unless we forget the concept of the good, too. All of these concepts are byproducts of ressentiment. And just like Adam mentioned, these philosophical priorities appear as presuppositions in Kant's philosophy, but Nietzsche induces his readers to conduct an inquiry as to the nature of the origin of these values, the upshot being that we might be able to recover some life-affirming tendencies or instincts. Yeah, Socrates is, is a really great person to bring up in that case, because there's a sense in which the very sort of model of knowledge he tries to bring about is the kind of uh, form of knowledge that really displaces any kind of knowledge that understands itself as a collection of forces that have given it a kind of sense. So, particularly, so if you think about how he asks, uh, you ask a general, for example, in, the, in Plato's Larkies about what courage is, and what he wants is the precise definition. He wants the, the ideal. He wants the outer worldly. But really, what these what the problem is is that the definition he's getting in the, from the Larkies is this from the generals is this version of courage as a collection of uh, forces in terms of a history of events. He's, he's arguing for he's, sorry. The generals are giving him a paradigm case, something formed by a history of forces. Well, Socrates instead wants this you know, fully reasoned otherworldly form and even when he can't uh, even when the Socratic dialogue doesn't end in aporia like the Larkis does you turn to the later uh, or at least middle late Plato and the response is to dress it up in mythology or in noble lies it's hiding the forces underneath representation in, in terms of what a, a genealogy is um, Raymond Goyce has a couple of really good essays um, on this. They're, they're called two very similar names. One of them is definitely called Nietzsche and uh, Genealogy. Um, and he provides a really clear explanation of what, what exactly this methodology uh, is, how it works. And in and, and general, sort of simplistic terms, he's going to say that what, what genealogy does is it... Firstly, it doesn't attempt to find a single point of origin for any given thing. In fact, in general, it's going to find that there isn't any ever any single origin. But also importantly, it's not going to show 
why you know the, the glorious origin um, in, in a way that something like a pedigree would. Um, it almost always will be quite the opposite, where this thing which people take to be, um, let's say, let's say a very good or important value today. Um, you, they'll, they'll, you and Nietzsche will trace it and show you um, the forces which produced it are filled with blood and conflict and violence um, and so on in a way which often serves to undermine the, uh, the status of that value today, um, which of course is what you know he spends most of uh, the genealogy of morals doing is showing you the, um, the origins of these values we all, we all take for granted today. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to also add that uh, Raymond Goyce is quite a good, good, good person to read when it comes to genealogy. He has much more to say than that. That's not even all of what he says, but um, yeah, I think it's a good starting point. So it might be important to revisit or visit for the first time for some listeners what Nietzsche means by resentment and its connection to other concepts, slave morality and, and bad conscience. So I don't see Deleuze as necessarily redefining resentment. What he's doing is he's tapping into the deepest implications of the concept and using it to elaborate the theory of forces. And in doing so, Deleuze disabuses us of this notion that resentment is a psychological trait. Really what it is, it is the motor of history for him. It's what creates psychology and history and so forth. Nonetheless, I think a good starting point is to talk about resentment in the sort of conventional way that people understand it. We can describe it as an emotional comportment or disposition of people who are impotent to act upon forces that are acting against them and their interests, and as an alternative, use guilt and moral condemnation as a way to rein in the power of the strength of the strong. And so, the story that Nietzsche tells us is that before the establishment of modern civilization, men were able to act according to instinct, thus giving rise to a social order dictated by the unfettered power of the master class. The slave class takes vengeance on the strong by deploying morality as a weapon to make the strong feel guilty about their strength. And for our purposes in this discussion, I want to talk about how Deleuze suggests that resentment deeply ramifies the social field. I think that's important for politics. And for this reason, Deleuze emphasizes that resentment is not reducible to a psychological trait, but it is resentment that gives rise to the totality of psychology in the broadest sense. So, in other words, start drilling into any part of the institution of psychology, for example, from its base presuppositions, its organizational structures, the people who work within it, the therapeutic priorities, and its resentment all the way down. And this is not only true for psychology, but for all institutions in the modern world, education, governance, scientific disciplines, anywhere there's institutional memory, there's going to be reactivity, and we can be pretty rest assured uh, that resentment is going to be a feature of those institutions. Yeah, I think to go back to Giorgio Morals, another key uh, aspect of this of this slave revolt is that Nietzsche talks about an economy of, of cruelty, mainly based on a creditor-debtor relationship. So, for example, if someone defaults on their debts, then uh, the the creditor can do harm to them. Uh, it can extract a sort of a surplus of, of, of cruelty, or at least, well, it's a surplus coin, Lazar Guattari, um, and this and this relies on the mechanism that Deleuze identifies in Nietzsche and philosophy as an inability to forget. The figure of Rosentimont is in a, a constant 
process of recording. And rather than uh, what, what it does is it neutralizes the sort of connections made when a sort of an incursion is made into that person when they are excited by a force that they can't quite actively respond to. And this this is recorded, you know, the note is taken, and then this is deployed later in the aspect of revenge. Um, what happens? It's, it's kind of like a body of our organs, in a sense. The the Resonant yeah, records, it neutralizes connections that really it can't actually fulfill in the first place, and then it redeploys them later. It redeploys these slights against it, these debts made in the form of blame. So the form of blame that takes most precedence in um, the Christianity understood by Nietzsche is sort of debt to the Father, debt to Christ. And this is repeated again and again in generic form of, of Catholic guilt, it of constant debt. But this is also in the financial sphere. There is debt everywhere. Everything is transactional. And this debt is used to sort of uh, mitigate various kinds of cruelties. For example, austerity. Every act of social spending is seen as, as a slight to a resentment-loaded political, uh, political economic situation. And this is used to justify untold cruelty. And it's also important, uh, and I, I mean, I think this was implicit in your description, but that other forces are cut off by this architecture of resentment. So, um, if we stretch the concept not just over the individual brain or body, but the, the totality of society, there are forces everywhere that might be emergent or just simply repressed that cannot break through the sort of firmament of resentment or the body without organs of collective resentment. And this is, I think, right away, if we're, if we're talking about a left Nietzscheanism or a left anti-capitalism, for example, this, I think, provides an apt starting point for us. I mean, if you're already, if you're always already sort of swarmed by guilt, even when you, you know, you're not, act, you're not likely to go act against you. You're, meant to, you're going to try and repent, even if you are someone with an incredibly active mindset and capacity to, to do great things. You know, this isn't, this isn't necessarily saying all guilt is bad, but it's just that there's a sense in which you can be swamped in this economy of debt and impose economy of sort of being spiteful to yourself. Because if, if this, if this economy of debt is transcendent or irrepassable in the sense of the very alien institutions of capitalism, you know, if, as Nietzsche says that everything not expressed outward will turn inwards and you will start hating yourself. You know, you start saying, you know, I, I will never be enough. I need to make this bread every day. I need to do all these self-flagellating things and these god-awful precarious jobs all the time when really you should be overthrowing the entire economy at, at its resentment-based root. Three things. Firstly, just very briefly, that um, in, in Deleuze, and as for Nietzschean philosophy, uh, Deleuze writes that um, there are three, I think, characteristics of, uh, of the typology, I suppose, of the person of resentment. And the first one would be the inability to admire, respect, or love, uh, the memory of traces in itself full of hatred, um, which fits into the the second feature, this is why I, I sort of wanted to bring up, because we talked about memory earlier. Um, the second feature is passivity. And so from my reading, and hopefully if this is incorrect, someone can correct me, my reading is that if we aren't, wanted to ask a very basic question and an important question, who is, who is the person of Resentiment for, for Nietzsche? My understanding was, is, is that it would be the person who feels these kinds of these slights, these wrongs, whatever, but rather than embodying that in a reaction in actually acting about that um it's simply felt it's a person who can't forget but also can't um act on those on on those uh impulses i suppose and so it simply becomes um 
in a sense, turned inward, but also then directed back out against the entire world. Um, the world is at fault for um, everything which, you know, I, I, I hate and experience. Um, and there's, there's an, I, I need to find it, but there's an amazing passage in here where, uh, in, in Deleuze's uh, Nietzsche and Philosophy, where we, we have the quote from earlier, you know, you are, you are evil, therefore I am good. Yes, yeah, so you are evil, therefore I am good. In this formula, it's the slave who speaks. It cannot be denied what values are still being created, but what bizarre values. Um, yeah, he who called himself good is the one who is now evil. Um, this evil one is the one who acts and who does not hold himself back from acting, who does not therefore consider action from the point of view of the consequences that it will have for third parties. Um, and so it seems to me that the person of his entomont for uh, Deleuze's Nietzsche is, is the one who sort of is wounded in some sense, um, and yet through an inability to act against that, simply experiences it as a kind of passivity and a kind of, um, well, resentment against the world and, and finds in the world those who are who are to blame. Yeah, I think one thing to bring in is would be to bring in the, the genealogy where, you know, uh, Nietzsche conjures up this idea that, you know, above the gates of hell, so too should the fallen angel place up, you know, a sign at the gates of hell that says, you know, I too was born of, you know, infinite love and forgiveness, you know, that these two things are actually, there's an, there's an impotence to this hatred, but it's, it's one that, that is deep, right? Because what you are given when you, when you die, right, is the, is the ability to watch all of those who transcended kind of your values or, uh, uh, transgressed your values, transgressed you as a person. Um, you get to watch their unending torture. Um, so I, I, with resentment, like, yes, there's sort of an inaction there, but there also is sort of a violent and deep hatred. It's just one that is bound up in impotence. I've actually found, I found, a, I found a, um, the perfect quote. I have to, I have to read it. Sorry, sorry, guys. Um, this, is, this, is, this is the definition, but pretty much what Deleuze gives, and it's, it's kind of brilliant. He says it's on page 118. It says, Considering gain as a right, considering a right to profit from actions that he does not perform, the man of Azantimon breaks out of breaks out in bitter reproaches as soon as his expectations are disappointed. And how could they not be disappointed since frustration and revenge are the a priori of resentment? It's your fault if no one loves me. It's your fault if I failed in life, and also your fault if you fail in yours. Your misfortunes and mine are equally your fault. And then he goes on to say, we can guess what the creature is on Timon wants. He wants others to be evil. He needs others to be evil in order to consider himself good. That's from Nietzsche's, uh, well, Deleuze's Nietzsche. Well, yeah, I mean, this, we, we can see, I mean, who's the man present him on? Well, it's Jordan Peterson. Um, it's <laughs> everyone right. else's fault that, uh, you know, he's he's uh, he's not lauded as a great Jungian savior. It's Derrida's fault. It's Foucault's fault. It's Deleuze's fault. It's Marx's fault. I mean, he wouldn't know. He's never read the man. And he needs all these people <laughs> to be evil, so that you know. Well, he uh, did he read the manifesto, which apparently is all he needs. Yeah, to prepare to prepare for the debate with Slavoj Zizek, he read the whole manifesto. I was deeply, 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 deeply impressed. The manifesto reminds me a lot of of, of a joke Zizek says, but I'm going to reformulate a bit for the English context. Uh, a genie visits an Englishman, and he says, "Look, I will give you whatever you want, but on one condition." The nice migrant family next door gets twice as much. What does the Englishman say? Take one of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right, Raymond. Yeah. 
is in your reading of resentment, you know, and I, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I think Nietzsche's sort of the great Rorschach test for political philosophy, depending on sort of your interpretation of these concepts, you can sort of get an idea of where the finality of their political project is based on their reading of Nietzsche. So, you know, the United States has a really unique relationship to Nietzsche because of the way in which these translations were meted out and who they were done by. You know, Walter Kaufman's uh, Nietzsche is one that is diametrically opposed to the Nietzsche of Deleuze, Foucault, Bataille. Um, and, you know, when we actually boil down to sort of the meat, grime, and bone of Walter Kaufman's interpretation of Nietzsche. It's one that is fundamentally all about, like, natural hierarchy. You know, there's very little, like, self-affirmation, very little, like, self-propelling, because to Kaufman, those are inherent in the individual. They're not ones that can be sort of fostered or searched for um, which is, again, like the diametrically opposed to, to readings of Nietzsche that you get, say, from like Del Caro. So, you know, it, part, I, I think Nietzsche is fascinating because like two people can address the same joke Adam said and one can say, oh, well, like this is the man of Ressentiment. But then on the other side, you know, there is one that will say, no, the man of Ressentiment is the man who like, I don't know, whines about capital. <laughs> so, so like, I, I do think that, like, Nietzsche, again, has a function there politically that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's one of the problems or worries I have with Nietzsche. And I'm going to say this and sort of pose it as a, as a sort of a question. And then I know Craig and Adam have, have, have definitely have views on this one. But it's one of the reasons why I, I, I worry sometimes about the utilization of the concept of Vizontimon, because... Um, it's, it's so common as a tactic of the right. Um, you know, the reason why you're attacking capitalism is just because, you know, you, or the rich is because, you know, you can't, you know, you're jealous. Yeah, you well. can't make it. You can't make it. And so now you're just blaming everyone else. You know, um, it's not the system's fault. Take some responsibility, stand up straight, you know, so on, so on. Right. Um, I, I see that being used a lot of the time, um, by the right as an attack on the left. Um, and it, it, it it's, it's, it's part of a tactic of, you know, I don't know, just common sort of common phrase, but like playing, playing, playing the man and not the ball, right? Um, if, if, right. if there's a certain reading of, of Nietzsche where, you know, if, if the values are kind of, um, if there's a kind of physiological aspect to uh, values, as Nietzsche seems to think there is, um, in terms of the kind of life that you have and that you live, then you know the views which you express can be, in some sense, reducible back down to. Um, down to that, right? And you, yeah, and then on the other side, right, you have the reading of the Ubermensch. Yeah, and so it's a tricky one. I'm not saying this is like a, you know, my final word on the critique of Nietzsche or anything like that, but it seems to me there is a risk there, and it does often get used by the right. And so I'd, I'd want to, I'd like to know what 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 you guys uh, sort of make of that and the way that Wisontimon can be used by both the left and the right. It clearly is. Well, yeah. Well, Nietzsche would first say that. Uh, the people saying that you need to take responsibility for yourself actually or just using resentment all the time he would be quite he'd be quite confused of why these people who are so anti-resentment tend to love using the language responsibility so much absolutely <laughs> that's exactly yeah. it When we did this episode, I was really happy about how this discussion shaped up. 
If you want to hear the rest of it, you can become a subscriber on Patreon for as little as a dollar, and then go ahead and grab the rest of that episode, and you can get access to our other full episodes as well. If you're not in a position to become a subscriber, or maybe you just want one of our t-shirts or something, just give us a shout, and maybe we can get that episode to you for free. In any case, our next episode is going to be our Q&A episode, so go ahead and send us your questions, and we will see if we can take care of them on that episode. There's a lot already, so uh, make sure you make it an interesting one. If we don't hear from you, we will see you next time, and until then, keep pushing to the acid horizon. 